The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. For me, it's a delight to be here. Um, this is the place where I really began teaching. Actually, Loving Kindness was the first class that Gil asked me to teach because I started teaching shortly after I had completed a four-month um, Loving Kindness retreat. And so it seemed like the very natural thing to begin my teaching. So it's always a joy to, um, to um, be here and share this with you. But as we end of the year, the theme that I've been working with for this month has been a fairly, I think, natural theme for the end of the year, which is impermanence. And I'd like to speak today about impermanence and the reflection on change. And I've titled this talk, Beyond the Rise and Fall of Things That Change. Some of you may be familiar with the Diamond Sutra. There's a beautiful verse from the Diamond Sutra that says, Thus one should think of this fleeting world, like a star at dawn, a bubble on a stream, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, dew on a blade of grass, a flickering lamp, a phantom, a mirage, and a dream. They're very fleeting images, very ephemeral images. And if we think back over the year, it's more or less gone, isn't it? It's amazing how things pass. In insight meditation traditions, we put a great deal of emphasis on experiencing quite vividly, seeing quite clearly this fact that things pass. Seeing impermanence is not considered to be some kind of weird esoteric experience that you have to have struggled in years of meditation and sat in caves in the Himalayas in order to experience. We see it in every contact. Right now, things are changing. Is your mood the same as it was two hours ago? Are the sensations in your body the same as they were when you were having breakfast? Things are continuously changing internally and externally. One student described to me the experience she had when she went to church and greeted the person on her left um, who was a young woman and excitedly, happily, joyfully said, I'm pregnant. And then she turned to greet the man on her left who said, did you know that my wife died last week? It's a very vivid image of sitting between birth and death, which is actually what we all do. We are sitting between birth and death. Our own life is an experience of change, of flux, of process. And wherever we look, that's what we're going to find is change. So in Dharma practice, we are asked to become interested in this fact to be curious about change. When we notice the sensations of breath, to notice how do they change. When we feel pain in the body or pleasure in the body, to not push away the unpleasant and grasp onto the pleasant, but to notice how sensations change. When thoughts arise, moods, emotions, we notice them change. Sounds in the environment We don't just hear, oh, that's a truck, and go to the concept. Or that's a siren, and we go to the concept. Or that's a person moving. 
We notice, oh, there's an increasing of sound and a decreasing of sound. We notice sound arising. We notice it passing. We notice it change. So we train ourselves in insight meditation practice to perceive the impermanence of sensory contact. Is there any experience that you have had today that has lasted? Even the earth changes. Now the Buddha has these discourses where he describes the earth being eventually flooded over and dissolved into the oceans and it goes on to this dramatic experience of change. But a couple of months ago we had that earthquake and it was on a Tuesday evening when my group meets in, Met in Mountain View. So we were all in the middle of our meditation and then there was that big earthquake. Do you remember where you were? Did you feel it? I mean, if you weren't on the road or something, you probably felt it because it was a very... And so we're sitting there very mindful that the earth itself is moving, is changing, is a process, is in flux. It can't be counted on to last, to be stable, to be solid. The eye itself is constructed to perceive change. I was, um, it was explained to me that if something was put right on the eye itself, we wouldn't even be able to see it because it, we require distance and so a change in the, in the subtle movements of the eye between the eye and the object, those little shifts, those little changes, to be able to see. What we're perceiving itself could be thought of as perceiving change. So we're asked to recognize this fact unmistakably, absolutely vividly, so that, not be, so that we become obsessed with change. Oh, this is changing, this is changing, this is changing, and just go through our day noti- noting change. But so that we learn to live at ease with the insecurity of things, free from fear, free from the sense that things should be more stable or more enduring, or more controllable or more lasting than they actually are. Because that simple fact is, is that they are continuously changing and not always the way we want them to change. If we're uncomfortable with things that change, uncomfortable with the way things shift, adapt, grow, decay, die, slip away, then we might be uncomfortable with the very fact that we too are born, we grow, we age, we decay, we fall apart, usually joint by joint, (laughs) and eventually die. We move in each day through a fluctuation of pleasure and pain. And in the depth of this understanding, we learn that there is nothing that we can rely upon for our happiness. Because anything that we positioned our happiness upon will inevitably change. Every possession, every relationship, every activity, every capability, every role. Is there anything that you rely upon for your happiness. If so, then you might suffer when it changes. 
So we observe impermanence so that we can really get this insecurity and learn to be free from the fear of insecurity because we know it's simply a fact. We investigate the truth of things so that we are not deceived into taking what is impermanent to be permanent, what is unreal to be real, or what is essentially unsatisfactory to be a cause for happiness. In a world of insecurity and change, if we don't come to terms with this fact of change, then often what the human mind does is it tries to grasp onto something to feel solid and secure, to seek happiness. I think we've all tried this, right? It's called the cause of suffering. But has it worked? Has it worked to bring you happiness? Grasping onto anything that changes, it just simply doesn't work. So when we see impermanence deeply and consistently, it provides an understanding to let us live in this world of flow, this world of change, free from that habit of clinging, free from continuously creating the causes of suffering. So in mindfulness practice, we are encouraged to be mindful of change, not just to notice the breath, but to feel the changing sensations of the breath. Not just to notice the contact of the foot with the um, floor when you take a step in walking meditation, but to feel how that pressure increases and decreases when it begins, when it ends. We're encouraged to go beyond the concept of the thing when we see something, not just note wall or carpet, but to notice fluctuations in that experience, how there's a moment of seeing that begins and ends. Each thing we perceive through any sense store is known. It arises in consciousness and persists for a while as it changes, increasing, decreasing, and then it ends. It ceases. It fades. Sometimes it ceases quickly and suddenly and sometimes gradually dissipating. So in meditation practice, we slow down and refine our attention so that we know what is actually happening and how does it change? Does it expand? Does it contract? Does it get brighter? Does it get duller? Does it occur intermittently or smoothly? What happens as we observe it? What is our relationship to it? Wisdom concerning impermanence is very important because if we're deceived into taking something to be permanent, even for a moment, then it's a very small step to slide into thinking, oh, I'll be happy if I could just keep this. Or if it's unpleasant, then we might try to get rid of it. I'll be happy if only I could get rid of this or solve this problem. And we might think that we'll... We might put a lot of effort into thinking that we could be happy if only we could have more money, that particular house in the country, a better seat in the meditation hall, better health, a particular food for lunch. 
When we grasp onto the pleasant and push away the unpleasant, then we find ourselves in conflict with our experience. The essential root of that conflict is that we're not understanding that that experience is changing anyway. The initial delusion is not seeing impermanence. That might sound abstract. Often when people hear a talk on impermanence in a Buddhist context, they think, oh, this is the concept that we have to understand. All things are impermanent. And I am speaking about it in a way as a concept, but trying to point and encourage you to experience this change in seeing, in hearing, in smelling, in tasting, in touching, in thinking, in your emotions, in your relationships, in your activities. Impermanence is listed as one of the three characteristics of existence. Those three characteristics are the impermanent nature of things, the unsatisfactory nature of things, and the not-self aspect of things. Anicca, dukkha, and anatta are the Pali terms. And these are the three primary um, characteristics that insight meditation practices, vipassana, practices are oriented to perceiving. It's said that insight into any of these three characteristics will lead directly to wisdom and liberating insight. These are called the three doorways to the deathless. One of the lovely things about doorways is you don't have to go through all three. You just have to open one of those doors and pass through from suffering to the end of suffering, from ignorance to clear seeing. And impermanence is one of those doorways that we can experience in our daily life very clearly, very intimately. One of the inspirations for the Buddha to um, undertake the holy life was was his perception of the transience of all things. He thought, he reflected, he realized, myself being subject to birth, subject to death, subject to change. How can I find happiness or peace in things that are also subject to birth, subject to death, subject to change? Rather than looking for peace and for happiness, in things that change, in getting more of this or less of that, in developing a finer relationship with this and a clearer control over that. He turned his attention to consider, was there something else? He looked toward the deathless element, Amitadhatu, which is printed on the wall. What does not change? This was his initial inspiration that moved from worldly life to the undertaking of his spiritual and uh, dharma, his dharma practice. Now, Sariputta and Mahamogalana also had a deep um, um, inspiration that came from perceiving change, from contemplating change. And it's said that they were, they were the two chief disciples of the Buddha. And before they undertook the holy life, they were hanging out at one of those... Um, Festivals, And it's kind of described in the texts as, I, I imagine it as kind of like an ancient Indian rodeo. Because there were athletic events, and there were animal shows, and there were performers and clowns, and 
you know, all kinds of sort of stuff. It was kind of a, a festival. Um, and they were enjoying the festival and they had this recollection, they had this thought, you know, everybody here is going to pass, is going to die, this is all going to end. Why do we seek happiness in such transient pleasures? What is beyond things that decay and change? It was this inspiration that turned them from the preoccupation with worldly pursuits to to developing a meditative practice. This desire to look beyond the rise and fall of things that change inspires exploration. Do you ever consider what lies beyond change? To discover what is changeless, we must look in a direction that is not conditioned by any movement of arising, persisting, and ceasing. But the first step is to first really understand the process of the conditioned of the arising of things, of the persisting and change, and of the ceasing. So we explore the conditioned nature of things precisely, accurately, really clearly, so that we will not be deceived by it. Once we're convinced that things, everything we can perceive, is impermanent, then there's a sequence that occurs we very quickly see it clearly as impermanent. So we are no longer enchanted with those experiences. We no longer rely upon them for our happiness. And then our attention gets freed up, free to turn our attention away from the fascination with objects that change, away from the conditioned realm of everything that arises and everything that passes, away from dependence upon anything that we can conceive of. And we ask ourselves, right in the core of our being, in the silence of the heart, we ask, what is not touched by change? How can we know that? Most of the time we live very busy, agitated lives. Driving here and there a little too fast. Doing this and that, actually more things in a day than if we really thought about it we would want to do. Busy at work, busy at home, lists of projects. We're so fascinated with the arising and passing of things that we rarely even stop to consider the possibility of something beyond that. And we might get to the end of our lives and find that we have just completed an awful lot of to-do lists. We put them on the list and we cross them off the list. Events occurred and they ended. They arose, they passed. Things were born and they die. And we too will die. It's helpful to understand what is so powerful about all of these activities, all of these events, all of these experiences of the senses that keep drawing us in to become attached to things that are transient. Because we all know things change, right? Yeah, you know that. 
But do we know it? Do we really know it? We sort of know it intellectually, you know, like if we had a quiz and I asked you, are all things permanent or are they impermanent? I'm sure you would all get it right. But each time we rest our happiness upon getting something or avoiding something, in that moment, we've forgotten impermanence. We've forgotten that it's changing. And we get attracted to certain things. You might like one thing, I might like another. The things that bind us are not in the thing itself, because everybody has different things that attract them. What binds us is this not perceiving the transient nature of things. It's the distortion of perception. It's this ignorance that thinks we can be happy if we get it, if we avoid it. Once we finally stop busying ourselves by manipulating and trying to control the conditioned things, which is what we do most of our day, more of what we like, less of what we don't like, manipulating, fixing, trying to make a nice day, then we free our energy to investigate awareness itself. Where is awareness found? What knows experience? Is awareness subject to change. Our thoughts change. But what occurs before the arising of a thought? Does that change? Does the source of thoughts change? We usually have to understand the conditioned and pay attention to impermanence many, many times and go up and down and up and down and up and down on this kind of roller coaster of seeing the birth and the death and the birth and the death until we realize that we can have another perspective on the passing show of phenomena, kind of the parade of life that goes by and rest in a place that doesn't depend upon anything for our happiness, to rest in the essence of bliss itself, a clear, luminous, and profound knowing that does not appear to arise or pass with the fluctuations of any perceptions. Now, the characteristic of things is that they are impermanent, unsatisfactory, and not self. Anicca, dukkha, and anatta. We investigate these characteristics so that we will not be deceived and can live our life free from clinging. This is the core of vipassana practice. I spent a number of years with a teacher in India, H.W.L. Punja. His guru was Ramana Maharshi. And Punja, she used to tell us the story of what he attributed the, the, his awakening to many, many times. And he'd often tell it with teary-eyed and it was always a source of great joy for us. And he described that in his early years... Um, his, his family was um, um, a devout Hindu family who, um, who worshipped the god Krishna. 
and um, they were practiced the Krishna Bhakta very much, devotion to Krishna. And he would, you know, sing the name of Krishna and do all these practices and really just enjoy and love and delight and meditate on and with Krishna. Um, and his devotion was so strong that um, he described Krishna appearing to him, coming to him, being accessible. He had the experience of the presence of his God. And people who are engaged in a, a, pra- in, a, in a spiritual practice that includes a deity, includes a God, this is really one of the highest aspirations, is to truly have contact, to truly be connected with one's God. And Krishna, for those of you that are familiar with Krishna's character, there are a number of Hindu gods, and he's a very playful, if not downright mischievous character. And so when Poonchichi would interact with his god, they would often play, and it would be a little mischievous. And so he was spending the day in South India, and uh, um, he was living in Tiruvannamalai at the time. He was a mining engineer, and um, in the evenings and on the weekends, he would um, go to um, see his um, guru, Ramana Maharshi. And this day, he had spent a good deal of the time, what he called um, playing with Krishna. And in the evening, he went to see Ramana Maharshi. And Ramana asked him, what have you been doing all day? And Punja said, I was playing with Krishna. And Ramana didn't say, oh, that's very nice. He wasn't impressed at all. Ramana asked Punja, is Krishna here now? And Punja said, no. And Ramana said, what appears and disappears is not eternal and is not truth. What does not appear and disappear? What appears and disappears is not eternal and is not truth. What does not appear and disappear? This was the teaching that Poonjaji attributed to his awakening. And he had done a lot of practices before. A lot of practices. He was a very um, ardent practitioner of just about everything he could, um, could learn about and find. Um, it was this understanding of impermanence and looking beyond that made the pivotal shift in his experience. There are many beautiful experiences that we have in life. Some are just pleasant, sensual experiences. These can deceive us if we don't see their characteristics of transience, their inability to provide lasting satisfaction, and their emptiness of inherent existence. There's nothing wrong with having experiences in life. There's nothing wrong with seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching transient things throughout the entire duration of our life. That's what we perceive with our senses. So we notice things, but we notice them as changing experiences. And we contemplate, what is beyond this? What doesn't change? The Buddha Dharma asks us to rather vigorously investigate conditioned phenomena with tremendous emphasis on seeing impermanence. 
Remember, it was that reflection on these things are transient. How can I put my happiness on those things that turned the Buddha, Sariputta, and Mahamogalana from worldly life to the spiritual practice? But that isn't what they described as, as the final goal was seeing impermanence. No, that was the inspiration. That was the pivotal shifting from obsession with all of our personal preferences to being able to turn our minds to the deathless element. The purpose of seeing the condition so clearly, the purpose of noticing the arising and passing of things, is not just to understand the condition. It's not just to grow in wisdom regarding how the world operates, but it's to know our freedom right in the midst of change, to live with ease as the earth shakes, as we die, as everything that we amassed dissipates, as everything that has dissipated comes together, to live at ease with the fact of insecurity, so that we realize the unconditioned, the unchanging, the unaging, and the deathless. We practice to realize what is beyond the rise and fall of things that change. Let's have a few minutes of silent time together, please. I'd like to take the last couple of minutes to see if there are any questions, comments, discussion. I think it's very useful to be pointed towards uh, an aspect or a factor that we often forgot that uh, things do have a state of impermanence uh, because we have to rely on certain things in life in a permanent way to have it reliable. Uh, I just felt somehow that also it's too dimensional to look at things as uh, permanent versus impermanent. Uh, it felt to me like there needs to be a third dimension, if at least maybe three or maybe even more. And that third dimension that I see is a factor of time. Uh, so I think um, there are things that somewhat permanent within a certain scope of time. Uh, that um, that to make it wholesome, uh, that need also to be considered. Uh, so, for example, the meeting time usually on Sunday is at 9:30. There is something that needs to be reliable. Uh, contract need to be agreed upon and kept upon as something somewhat permanent within a, per- a certain period of time. There is a sense of reliability that we all need to to be. Uh, be able to rely on such as gravity, for example. Otherwise, chaos would be uh, emanating from. Mm-hmm. Okay, it's an interesting point. I would, um, I would say that contracts are not permanent, um, and um, um, meeting times are always subject to change. Um, it may be that we do have social agreements, and we can function socially. Um, and keep our agreements, keep our commitments, knowing that they are conditioned and their occurrence depends upon clusters of conditions and they um, 
are subject to change. So even if we have a commitment to come here at a certain time, you know, there could be a snowstorm and we can't get here. Oh, what do you know? But if it had to happen, then we might not be able to make the wise, the wise choice. So the, the reflection on impermanence doesn't need to throw us into kind of a disorganized chaos. It's actually an encouragement to see the organization of impermanent things, to see how things come together due to causes and conditions. But that doesn't need to make them permanent or lasting. So we can, um, it, it, we can still um, um, make a commitment and keep a commitment without relying upon that for our happiness or our identity. The link happens, the ignorance happens, is when we're grasping, when we're attached. Yeah, I appreciate your comment because there, there are a lot of, even with impermanence, the texts describe different facets of impermanence, the inconstant nature of things as well as the changing nature. The beginning and ending is one way of seeing impermanence. Something starts and stops. But it's another aspect to see the increasing and the decreasing. It's like there are different facets of it. But when we see either, the mind won't cling. And that's the key of extracting the insight up from clear seeing. Please. So we had a, a vivid experience of this, uh, speaking about meeting on, at 9.25 a few weeks ago. I don't know if you were here, but we had a, a, a woman that fainted. And, uh, and I hope if she's here, I hope she's okay. And we had the paramedics come, and there, there was a sense of chaos. Uh, we were all examining how we're going to act, react to this event. And once we knew that, that there were three doctors present and it was stabilized, um, we had a sense that we can relax and just be there, you know, with that bit of discomfort in the background. And Gil skillfully um, presented the, the, the thought that this was our Dharma, Dharma talk, this whole experience. So there was an event that we relied on on a particular time and chaos prevailed. And, Mm-hmm. Good example. There was a question back here. Um, there was a thought in my head about uh, impermanence, and that the only thing that is permanent is impermanence. Um, Aristotle said the only thing that is absolute is change, and that change even changes, and that's what's permanent. He said everything is changing, and our perception of it. It's that impermanence and the permanent, without one or the other, and that nowness of that um, state of, 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 of um, existence, you know, the present and the past and the future, is a permanent nowness, eternal nowness to some degree, where everything is now, but it's, it's constantly changing in now. I don't know. Um, um, it's what an I'm interesting. Saying. It's an interesting exploration to see how do we perceive and conceive of conditioned phenomena. You know, anything that we can see, hear, smell, taste, touch, think—that's conditioned. Anything that exists in time, past, future, and present, 
would be conditioned because it's conditioned by the conditions that occur in the present. So conditioned phenomena would be um, perceived as impermanent. So we can contemplate that, we can know it, we can investigate it. And a huge amount of the Dharma teachings that the Buddha encouraged us to explore has to do with the real clear seeing of all of these conditioned phenomena. But he also encouraged this, um, spoke about Nibbana as the unconditioned. Not just the path, but the end of the path. Not just the conditioned, but the unconditioned. Now, there's not much that we can say about it. I can't give you a picture of it. I can't draw you a map to it. I can't give you the terrain. Because that would put it right into the conditioned, right? That would become a map. That would become a terrain. That would be conditioned phenomena. So all the things that we think about and talk about kind of fall apart. But what, I, what I'm hoping to have, um, uh, what I was in, hoping to do with this talk was to encourage the really clear exploration of the conditioned. And please don't stop there. Once in a while, peek contemplate, consider, oh, what could be beyond this? What else is there? So that we don't only become wise with conditioned phenomena, but we once in a while allow, well, consciousness is conditioned too, so I can't say consciousness, but a knowing of something beyond conditioned. Something is wrong too. The thingness of it makes it conditioned. So I'll fall over all of my words if I try to go further in this. But just that sense of, I appreciate in what you're saying that there are um, um, uh, conditioned and the unconditioned. I may not, I'm not convinced about the eternal now, but, um, but I appreciate that general view of the conditioned and the unconditioned. It's very nice. Thank you. Um, we end at 10.45? Yeah. Okay. Well, um, thank you all for coming. It looks like there's some food back there. And um, have a lovely end of year and a very happy and peaceful new year to you all. Thank you.